Welcome to the Worldwide Podcast. This is episode three, and I'm delighted to welcome Sandor Katz as our guest this week. Sandor is the author of probably the most authoritative and thorough book on fermentation that, that I'm aware of. It covers every kind of um, process applied to food and beverage. It's called The Art of Fermentation. Um, and he also produced a book prior to that called Wild Fermentation. And that was, that was actually the book that got me fermenting ooh, probably mm, about nine years ago. So welcome, Sandor. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Perhaps you could uh, just tell a little bit of your story. Like, how did how did you come to be? Um, you mentioned to me earlier that you consider yourself a fermentation revivalist. Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's how I describe uh, 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 the work that I do. Well, you know, between yeah. between between my books yeah. and um, the, the the workshops that I teach, um, you know, I feel like I am helping um, to revive um, mm. you know interest and awareness and skills uh, related to um, you know fermentation, which um, you know is 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 really broadly defined um, uh, the microbial transformation of of our food, but it turns out that in culinary traditions from every part of the world, you know, fermentation is an essential part of how people make whatever food resources are available to them, mm. um, delicious, nutritious, uh, stable for storage, uh, 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 etc. So, you know, along with, um, you know, heat and a handful of other uh, techniques that we use to uh, uh, manipulate our food and transform the raw product of agriculture, um, as well as foraging into foods that uh, uh, people like to eat and drink, um, um, you know, it's 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 really sort of among the most important modes of transformation of our food, and you know, it's practiced everywhere. And yet, because we have less and less connection to the food that we eat, you know, fewer people than ever are familiar with this, and mm. um, you know, practice this in their own kitchens. Yeah, and probably probably very few are aware of just how many of the foods um, that are now produced industrially have have at least something to do with fermentation, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 absolutely, absolutely. No, I mean that's why I'm saying everybody eats and drinks products of fermentation every day. You know, your 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 coffee is fermented, your bread is fermented, your chocolate is fermented, your cheese is fermented, your cured meats are fermented. Uh, you know, the vinegar in your mustard is fermented. Um, but um, but 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 often, you know, these are happening, uh, you know, in in faraway factories, and so people have no, um, you know, idea that. That, that that that's part of how their food is being produced. Um, but more and more people are getting interested in learning how simple these techniques really are um, and um, playing around with fermentation uh, uh, in home kitchens and restaurant kitchens. And I suppose that's part of what you're saying, isn't it? That, that these are processes which are right there embedded in pretty much every traditional food culture or every food culture. Um, so that they arose in that context, right, of just something you can do in your own house. They're not highly technical things that you need lab equipment or testing equipment or something like that. No, no, no not yeah. at all. Not at all. 
I mean, I, I would say that, you know, because, you know, all of us who were born and raised in the 20th century were raised, you know, with this idea that bacteria are, are so dangerous and that we always need to be guarding against uh, bacteria, that in our time, people have come to, uh, you know, project um, uh, the fantasy that um, you need a laboratory, you need a microscope, you mm-hmm. need uh, absolutely controlled conditions. But, um, you know, really every fermentation process, you know, you could think of it as an ancient ritual that people have been doing literally for thousands of years, yeah. um, you know, before before we knew about bacteria and yeast, uh, before, um, uh, you know, we were able to, um, you, you know, control temperature and control humidity um, um, and things like this. So, I, I mean, really at their core, these, um, these processes are extremely uh, simple. Generally, they're self-protecting, so there's no, um, there's no great danger to them. Um, and, um, you know, and, and their effectiveness really is demonstrated by the test of time that these have, you know, endured as, you know, sort of safe, delicious, practical uh, methods for working with food. I mean, I suppose, I suppose, for, you know, for somebody listening, it, it, it might need to, uh, or might be good to drill down into that just a little bit deeper, because obviously there are pathogenic bacteria, and there is such a thing as, food spoilage that that can make you sick but is it the case that the kinds of bacteria that we're relying on to to, to produce these transformations that we find delicious and um and and good for food stability and so on that, that those bacteria are actually get in the upper hand somehow that, that these processes actually allow beneficial bacteria to be uh yeah, let me let, let me address this a, a little bit. So, okay. you know, one of the one of the facts that microbiology has really illuminated for mm. us is that you know anything that we eat, everything that we eat, is populated by elaborate communities of microorganisms. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's the there's the possibility that there could be pathogenic organisms present on the food that that that, that we eat. Um, you know, there are probably Yeasts. There are various kinds of uh, uh, bacteria, but but the big question for fermentation is which of this multitude of organisms that exist on any uh, on any plant on an, on any man, animal product, which of these are going to develop? And mm-hmm. so you know the practice of fermentation you know really amounts to um, yeah, small environmental manipulations um, that kind of guide uh, the process, right? Exactly. They, they determine, you know, which microorganisms can flourish under this particular condition that we've created and which cannot. So, for instance, um, uh, you, you know, typically what I what I what I what I teach people as a first ferment is how to is how to ferment vegetables because mm. it is just incredibly, incredibly simple. Like you chop some vegetables to create surface area. You lightly salt them to taste. There's no magic number. Lightly mm. salt, toss them around, taste it, add a little bit more salt if you like, add other seasonings if you like, chili pepper, garlic, dill, um, um, juniper berries, or any, anything. You can be, mm. you can be as experimental uh, or, or as simple and straightforward as, as you like. Um, and, and then the salt starts to pull water out of the shredded vegetables. Um, and then you can, you can sort of speed up that process by squeezing them or pounding them a little bit. Yeah. And that starts to break down cell walls and really 
release more juice. And so the environmental manipulation we're, we're looking for is to get the vegetables submerged under their own juices. Once they're submerged, anything aerobic, anything that requires oxygen can't grow. So if you didn't do that, you'd probably get, get, get uh, hairy white molds growing all over everything. But because you get them submerged, you wipe out the possibility of the molds developing, except possibly on the surface, which is the most vulnerable place. Mm-hmm. And beneath it, lactic acid bacteria, which are present on all plants growing out of soil on planet Earth, develop every single time. And as they acidify the environment, you know, even if there happen to be some cells of Clostridium botulinum or um, anaerobic, E. coli or, or Salmonella, then, you know, basically they all get wiped out because what all the pathogenic bacteria have in common yes. is that they cannot um, survive in an acidic environment. So yes. as the lactic acid bacteria generate acids, um, um, the, 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 the environment gets less and less hospitable hmm. to things that we would regard as pathogens. Like there's not one single known documented case of food poisoning or illness from this food that Billions of people eat on a daily basis yeah, that's in different really parts of the world. And can I just check those those pathogenic bacteria that you listed back there? They they were also anaerobic ones, right? But you're saying the the, the molds are aerobic. Yep. The other ones, I mean, Clostridium botulinum is called an obligate anaerobe, and it can only grow in the total absence of oxygen. Yep. yep. Um, 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 e. coli would be an anaerobe, but it, but it, it could, sur- it could survive oxygen, right. but what it can't survive is, is high acidity. So that's the beauty of it. The, the, what, what those lactic acid are doing is they're producing a medium, which, which these pathogenic bacteria can't, can't live in. Exactly. Beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and then the added benefit for us is that, um, you know, lactic acid bacteria are part of our digestion. So, um, you know, lactic acid bacteria are bacteria that we could describe as probiotic, mm. um, um, you know, that, 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 that can help actually, you know, help our digestion, help to restore biodiversity in the gut, contribute towards our, our immune uh, uh, function. Yeah. Um, and um, and so, you know, it turns out that far from the indoctrination that anyone, you know, born in the 20th century received that bacteria are so terrible that, that we need bacteria. Bacteria are an essential part of us. A healthy human body has, you know, trillions of bacteria and they're not, you know, parasites or, or freeloaders. They're actually, you know, giving us a, a certain amount of our functionality um, and we cannot function well in this world without bacteria. They are our partners. Um, and if you think about it in an evolutionary scale, uh, you know, they are our ancestors mm. and no multicellular form of life has ever been able to live or function without its bacterial partners. Without its ancestors as well. It's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just wonder what the, um, the proportionality is if, if we were to consider... Well, I don't know whether we'd go at it from that number of species or, or total biomass, but do, do you think the the pathogenic side is in the minority? I mean, would it be true to say that? In, in our bodies or in the world? I was thinking in the world, just like in terms of what, what potentially could trip us up and and, uh, and cause uh, 
Oh, I mean, it is my general impression, and, and you know, I, I am not a microbiologist. I'm not a biologist. I'm just, you know, I'm interested in these foods, and my interest in this, these foods have, you know, um, um, you know, caused me to do a, like a good bit of, um, of, 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 of reading. But, um, you know, but, but I am not trained as a microbiologist. But, you know, my, my general impression is it is a very, very narrow range of bacteria yeah. that have the potential to make us sick or cause infections, and that in general, our best protection is biodiversity. Yeah. So yeah, just yeah. as just as the you know bacteria uh, uh, um, that will always dominate when you get cabbage and other vegetables submerged under liquid protect it from the possibility of pathogenic bacteria, you know so too do the bacterial communities of our skin and our mouths and our intestines, yeah. um, you know function to protect us from pathogens. And you know obviously our protective systems are not you know 100% perfect because People yeah. do get sick, um, but you know, in general, biodiversity is our um, uh, greatest protector. And uh, you know, many bacterial infections arise, you know, out of the compromised state that we end up yeah. in, uh, you know, after antibiotics or you know, chronic use of um, antibacterial cleansing products uh, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, on, yeah. on our skin. Um, but but we're we're basically sort of breaking down, you know, constantly these sort of you know protective systems. Yeah. Uh, uh, in which biodiversity is what's protecting us from the limited range of bacteria that can make us sick. I think that's fantastic. I mean, just 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 to put it in a, just another way, like with a, with a metaphor that people use, like concerning the the fabric or the web of life. You know, to me, that's something that undergirds us and sustains us, you know, and and so on the one hand we can we can think of biodiversity but also just diversity generally and and complexity in our diet. So another factor that would probably leave us wide open to um infection or at least compromise our immune system is when we're eating an industrial diet with with um without those sort of complex foodstuffs with the diversity of nutrients in and so on. Um, right, and then and then also to bring this into wild foods, which mm. I take it is the sort of general, um, um, focus of your um, of, of 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 your podcast. But um, you know, wild foods isn't just about plants. You know, it's about the the organisms that we find on our plants. And so, um, you, you know, what I just described of a sauerkraut fermentation is something that the literature would describe as a wild fermentation because you're not yeah. adding some particular bacterial starter. You're just relying on the wild organisms that are inevitably found on that kind of a plant yeah. and fermented. And in almost every tradition of fermentation, you know, the idea of like adding a starter is really like a 20th century idea facilitated by the science of yeah. microbiology. But, but before that, you know, if you're making, if you're making wine, you're relying on, um, you know, yeast and bacteria that are found on the grapes. If you're making yeah, yeah. A, a bread, you're relying on yeast and bacteria that's found on the wheat. So, you know, wild fermentation is just when you're, uh, you know, relying for your fermentation on the organisms that are, you know, found on whatever the food is that you're fermenting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just to pick up on what you said, the, 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 the podcast certainly is about wild food, um, but it's also more generally just about the idea that wild stuff is 
just more reliable, you know, and, and is, is more robust. And that we've got ourselves into a bit of a jam because we, we've stopped trusting that. You know, you, you, you said just there that you, you rely on these bacteria and to, to produce the, the result in the fermentation. And we're just working on the thesis basically that people used to rely generally they just rely on what wild stuff provided and and they wouldn't think that it was a better solution to come in there and and disrupt that system with something more simplified less complex and where we ostensibly have more control but we end up compromising our own system i guess i would i would only add to that that they're not necessarily mutually exclusive like you can you know you can work with elements of 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 both uh, you know, cultivation and yeah. wild things. Like I would say, like in my garden, there's certain things that I am trying to grow. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, where I have the lettuce planted, I am, you know, pulling out the chickweeds and the dandelions, but I am letting them grow in other places. And I love to make salads that include both leaves of lettuce and some dandelion and some chickweed. Um, and so, you know, incorporate some of the, um, you, you know, sort of cultivated, uh, 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 vegetables along with things that you know are weeds that just uh, appear spontaneously yeah 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 i mean i guess i guess what we're doing is i mean that's but you're talking about quite a complex approach to cultivation and um i guess i guess the critique of industrial agriculture is is fairly um well established and no one's going to argue with that um but i suppose it's just looking at looking at what happens in general when we move from hunting and gathering to agriculture that there definitely was a shift in terms of people's um working in symbiosis with ecology and um so i think there's i think there's something to be drawn from looking at our ancestors um having a more fundamental relationship of trust because like the thing the thing about planting and um sowing seeds to get a crop it does mean that you um, you rely on basically an intervention in 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 the existing ecology, whereas the previous situation was relying entirely on on um, the wild genetics. And uh, I can I can see I can see there's there's a lot of room for people basically making agriculture and cultivation more complex. Um, but the thought of the thought experiment that we're doing is is to explore just how far we could go back into um, a wild paradigm that looked at the productivity of ecosystems and the complexity and the resilience of ecosystems. But anyway, it's not necessarily the uh, the, uh, the topic we, we need to explore here. But just to, just to say, I, I do think that that issue around pathogenic bacteria is an example of the kind of wrong move. That, that we've made as, as, as humans, um, because it's basically like paranoia, isn't it? That if, if that's right, that there's only a very small amount of bacteria and the rest of these things are actually working with us and supporting us and are almost inseparable from us in terms of the ones that are on our bodies and in our bodies. It's an extraordinary thing that we end up fearing and, and, um, thinking that that, that that part of life, the microbial kingdom, um, is actually trying to get us. It's trying to take us out rather than um, trying to support us. 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, um, you know another another way to think of it is mm. that um, you know we are bacterial superstructures. Mm. So you know we are these universes of bacteria, and you know they're a part of us, but they're they're certainly not conspiring to take us down because you know we are you know we are their superstructures that. Mm. Um, um, you know, you know, function as this universe for them. And we're able to, you know, let's say chew things that, you know, give the trillion of them in our, in our intestines. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're growing all this wheat to ferment with them and growing all these grapes to ferment with them and growing all this barley to ferment with them. So, you know, they have a pretty good thing going. <laughs> Well, I have to confess that my, my own fermentation has is, is not really got much further than the, the basic realm that you described there, just adding salt to vegetables and, and uh, having pickled vegetables. But I guess because we're working with the wild plants, there's quite a lot of different ones to explore. So that's, that's pretty much kept me busy for the last 10 years. I must say, I've found that quite a lot of them, they don't have a very stable product at the end of it. So... You, you get something that tastes good initially, but as compared to something like um, pickled cabbage, the fermented cabbage, they just they just don't last long, and they end up smelling pretty bad after a while. Do, do, do you have mm. any? Well, um, so 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 you're like you're you're picking like a variety of like wild greens and chopping them up and salting them. Well. When yeah, so what I'm describing there is the is the experiments we've done with just a with with just a one plant only fermentation. So we'll take something like sour thistle, um, or nettles, or watercress is another one. I mean, watercress is not bad. It's just it, it ends up smelling um, a bit funky. You know, to, to some people. Yeah, yeah sure. No, anything fine, anything but, anything dark green like watercress with yeah. a with a high proportion of chlorophyll yeah. will just ferment with a really strong flavor. Yeah. Um, you know, this is why sometimes, you know, I'll take dark green vegetables and, you know, ferment them with um, some cabbage or turnip or, you know, yeah. something that w won't have quite as strong of uh, of, of a flavor. Um, so, um, so sure. I mean, there's a little, you know, kind of alchemy uh, of thinking about the, you know, the flavor of these things and, um, you know, how stable your products will be depends a lot on temperature. So, I mean, fermentation is a wonderful means for, you know, long-term preservation of vegetables if you're, you know, starting in October and fermenting them through March. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can, if you have an unheated space like a cellar, you can ferment for months and months. I mean, I have a, you know, I have a, I have a big vessel with, um, you know, probably, uh, you know, at this point, um, um, like, uh, over 150 kilos of daikon radishes and uh, and and cabbages. Mm. Um, um, but you can do that in the winter. I couldn't do that. I, I mean, I couldn't do that in May and and have it be stable all through June, July, uh, August, September, the hot parts of the year. So. Um, you know, the stability is really temperature dependent. I mean, you can preserve any vegetables for, you know, a few weeks at any temperature, but, um, you know, in warm temperatures, the metabolism of all these organisms goes faster. In cooler temperatures, they go more slowly. 
Yeah, so you know things are just more more stable in you know uh, cooler temperatures than in warmer temperatures, and you know your fermentation practice has to reflect that to to some degree. Um, I just got back from you know Panama, which is you know practically at the equator. You know you can ferment vegetables there, but it can't be a strategy for long term preservation. It just has to be about flavor, probiotics, you know, short term preservation, because mm. you know after a couple of weeks at that temperature unless you store it in the refrigerator, um, you know, things are going to get really funky, especially in terms of texture. Because, um, you know, in the short run, salting and fermentation will make vegetables crisper, but then there are enzymes in vegetables that will break down the pectins, which are the compounds in the vegetables that are making them crispy. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, especially a long fermentation in warm weather, you'll just end up with baby food. It's not going to be dangerous to eat, but it's probably not going to be very pleasing to eat. Yeah, and and, you, and that's nothing to do with like having opened the container to, so that it it gets exposed to air or anything like that. Well, I mean that that's that can be a factor also. So yeah. I mentioned yeah. that um, um, you know there are spores of molds on all mm. vegetables, and mm. you know you just shredded your vegetables and left them sort of loosely in a bowl without getting them submerged, it would just become like a big ball of hairy molds growing on all the cut surfaces. Yeah, um, and and in in hot humid weather, those those uh, molds could literally reduce a bowl of cabbage into a puddle of slime that would bear no resemblance whatsoever to delicious tangy crunchy sauerkraut um so um so so you know even once everything is submerged the the surface is where you yeah. know um uh, molds and other aerobic life forms can develop and you know, in general they're not dangerous Generally, what develop are these white molds, and if they're allowed to mature, they'll 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 darken into gray black, but they'll stay in a more or less monochromatic range. Um, and they're they're generally regarded as as um, as as safe. I mean, I've watched I, I watched a chef in China two years ago just mix the surface mold right into the big crock of vegetables without giving it a thought. Mm. Um, my preference is to scrape it off as best I can. Yeah. Um, and that's what I generally uh, encourage people to do, but sometimes that that aerobic uh, uh, surface growth will start to degrade the texture. Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of yeah. going down from the top. So you might have to remove the top, you know, inch or two, depending on how long it's it's grown, until you can see you have a, a like a nice firm texture uh, yeah. back. Yeah, I mean, the, just just to describe a detail for, for people that are listening with with. With the um, the basic lacto fermentation technique, what's what's happening is that um, as the bacteria are basically digesting sugars and so on in in the in the um, in the plant material, they're producing carbon dioxide. And most techniques involve and, and, and lactic and lactic acid. Right, lactic acid will be the, the primary yeah. byproduct, and then in the early yeah. stages, carbon dioxide will be a secondary yeah. byproduct, and, and you'll get less and less carbon dioxide as the fermentation proceeds. Yeah, but the thing I was going for there, Sandra, was just just that the 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 space, the head space at the top of your jar or whatever the vessel is. To begin with, you do have air there, and I know you recommend, for example, putting um like a plate roughly the size of the bucket on the top to to stop air touching the water um, yeah 
what what we tend to do these days is either really we've got big fermentation barrels, which are basically brewing barrels, and they've got an airlock air on top. Yeah. All so of carbon dioxide can get out without yeah. letting oxygen in. And and so your initial stage, you do have air at the top, but I don't worry too much about that. I don't really bother with it because we're, we're, we're aiming to have a nice quick ferment. And, right. and, and then so the other thing is as it's, as it, exactly, the carbon dioxide displaces the, right. the, the air. So the, the, the thing that we've, we've constantly come up with, it, and, and, and in the kitchen, in a home kitchen, you can do that just with a kilometer jar. I found they're amazing. They will actually let the, the, uh, the air out. But if it's, if it, if the fermentation is, is particularly lively, I just release the, the top and, and let it come out a bit quicker. But that means I don't even bother pushing the, the plant material down under the water or anything like that because I know it's going to ferment quickly and, and, and then, so then what you're left with is a headspace at the top that's got nothing but carbon dioxide. So you have completely anaerobic conditions inside the jar but the issue is as soon as we open our thing to check the check the ferment we've let air back in so <laughs> i've been trying to work out a, a design we haven't really got far with it but we've sat and done a lot of drawings and tried a few things that, that you could have um a way of just getting carbon dioxide back in there i mean i've, I've yeah. experimented with barrels of putting a um a I, well, uh, here, let, me, let me describe a few yeah. ways people do it. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the simplest way is probably to to use a uh, um, like a Ziploc uh, plastic bag filled with some water. Yeah. As a lid. Yeah. And so that will, um, you know, that you can you can work it so that that sort of keeps your vegetables completely submerged. Yeah. And covers the entire surface so that there's no access to oxygen. Um, you can work with, um, um, uh, uh, the way a lot of restaurants are doing it is vacuum sealing it in bags. Yeah. So then you're just so removing it. So it's, it's yes, no, I hear you. Well, yeah. this is why I, yeah. I mean, personally, I keep coming back to just skimming off any surface yeah. growth because yeah. uh, because I am very interested in looking, smelling, tasting frequently, and any yeah. any of the systems that exist for excluding oxygen, you're defeating them every time you open it up and um, and taste something. You're you're letting oxygen in. Um, so unless you're going to do something completely unsustainable, like resealing it in plastic every time, um, um, you know, I, I have just concluded that for me, it's just it's just fine and easy to skim a little bit of surface growth off uh, as necessary. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I've, I've I've also, there's a there's also um, dedicated vessels that are made for the wine industry. They're called mm. variable capacity fermentation tanks. They're made of very high-grade uh, uh, industrial stainless steel. And while generally I would tell people not to ferment in anything metallic because household stainless steel has the thinnest coating that is stainless and anywhere where it gets scratched, it could start to uh, uh, be corroded either by salt or by the acids developed by fermentation. Mm. The higher-grade stainless 
stainless steel works very well. In the variable capacity tanks, the lid fits inside, and then there's a plastic, almost like an inner tube that you blow up that seals it at whatever height it lands at. Ah. And so those vessels are, are very, very effective for um, um, excluding air at whatever capacity. I mean, but they tend to be in larger volumes, like, you know, made for, you know, different levels of, you know, small commercial production. Um, so the, one I have, the one I have is a 200-liter tank. You can get a 100-liter tank, but I don't know how much smaller than that they come. I mean, 100-liter would suit us. We, we do barrels of... Um, yeah, so if, you just, if you just search for variable capacity mm-hmm. fermentation tank, you'll see them. But I wonder if it's possible to transfer that idea into just a smaller thing that people could have in the kitchen. It's, uh, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Then, then they could get their vegetables out and keep them crispy and, and never have to worry about it in the, in the summer months. Cause, yeah. I mean, I, I find that some of the stuff that, that I've done really in quite warm weather, it, it's kept good until I start opening it. Yeah. Um, you know, you can sit there and get good, apparently quite, quite lively, but still the texture's good and it doesn't start um, having any off note. The other thing I wanted to um, mention is like when when we've tried some of the plants that we fermented, some of them just didn't just didn't really have much bacterial activity at all. And to begin with, I was a bit baffled. But like, I've come to the conclusion. Well, some of the, some of the uh, carrot family ones. Like we have a thing called Alexander's here. Um, even fennel doesn't seem to really prevent, ferment very much if you if you um, if you have a fewer fennel. So you're saying that because you didn't see a lot of bubbles. No, it just didn't get very sour. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so the conclusion I've come to, which I think is really interesting territory, and I, w- I wonder if you've been digging around in this territory, is that there are compounds that some of the probably the aromatics within those plants are doing a similar job. Um, to salt when you over salt, you know, because you can reach a point where you put salt in where it's not going to ferment at all, right? Um, right, right. Well, so, so, so salt would be one way of creating a selective environment. So yeah. when we add salt to the vegetables, it, it means that certain kinds of bacteria just can't develop in the presence of salt. Like mm. the salt inhibits them. It turns out that the lactic acid bacteria can tolerate salt, but they can only tolerate so much salt. So yes. if you use like, you know, uh, uh, like a certain level of, of, of salt, you could prevent the lactic bacteria from growing. And I think absolutely, like all kinds of uh, uh, aromatics um, uh, uh, function as um, uh, uh, selective environments. Although... You know, my guess is that the aromatics alone are not the, the 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 reason that it's some combination of you know the aromatics, the bacterial community that's on the plant, and the level of carbohydrates. You know, just some plants have higher carbohydrate levels, and you'll get a more uh, you'll you'll get a more meaningful fermentation. Mm. Um, um, you know, meaning more transformation, more production of acids. If you start with something with a, with an extremely low carbohydrate content, you just have less um, um, you know potential for that. Okay, well, I'll pursue that train of thought. Uh, yeah, I'm, because um, I, I've certainly yeah. I've certainly included yeah. fennel in vegetable ferments and it's been beautiful and not inhibited the ferment. Uh, at yeah. all. No, that's right. So that's that's so that's the next step we've got to. We both have the problems that I've described. One is one is 
as you rightly point out, some of the greenest stuff we're finding the the outcome is a bit bit too funky. And with these aromatic plants, where we found it just doesn't ferment very much, the solution in both cases seems to be we'll just use a little bit in a in a ferment with with other vegetables, and that tends to be what I do these days. Is you know some some root vegetables or some cabbage or something like that, and I'm kind of um, embellishing it with the wild ingredients. And then, but in that case, there's there's not the same effect because the, you know the the, the, the uh, aromatics are obviously significantly diluted, so they're not able to have that overall effect. But there's one particular example, um, which is it's a plant. I think you call it cow parsnip in the in the states. We we call it um, hogweed. Um, Heraclium is is the Latin name. Now, if you ferment that with salt, well, it just doesn't ferment. And and I think what what's going on there is that you've got a doubling effect of the aromatics in the plant and the salt, and it just means the bacteria can't do anything. So there's a traditional um, fermentation of hogweed, which actually is the uh, original um, of the of the uh, Russian or the Polish soup borscht. Did you know about that one? Oh, okay, okay, borscht. Okay, yeah, yeah. So borscht is, is is the actually the Russian name for hogweed, and but but it's one of those things that get changed as people move around. They try and find yeah. a substitute, and so Poland, that soup has now got beetroot and lemon juice in it to reproduce the fact that when you ferment hogweed, it releases um, a sort of pink um, pigment into the liquid. So you have it pink, and then obviously it's sour because of the fermentation. But it actually has nothing to do with beetroot or lemon juice originally. But the point is that that, that original um, method of fermentation for the for the uh, hogweed for the borscht is a salt-free one, and it's, mm. it's salt-free for that reason, which is that you know you tip the balance. The bacteria cannot get past both the salt and the aromatics. But when it's just the the hogweed, the aromatic does the same job as the salt and probably limits the activity of, of other bacteria, and uh, it's mm. an amazing. It's an amazing ferment. Well, that that's fascinating, and I mean, it's really exciting to hear that you're um, you're experimenting so much. And um, you know, I, I'm I'm always trying to you know remind people that you know the you know whatever expertise I have is just from experimenting a lot and and also reading on top of that. But you know, the thing about fermentation is you know you can potentially do with it with any. You know, anything you could eat, you could ferment, mm. but, you know, you might have to play around with things a little bit to sort of, you know, figure out uh, the best ways to do that. And um, and I love that you're doing exactly that. Yeah, I mean, so this this has been really a focus now, like the, the non-salt fermentation, partly because we're trying to make drinks. And, and a lot of guys in some of the restaurants in Europe, were, and I guess in the States too, they're using lacto-fermented stuff, um, and, 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 you know, making drinks like lacto-fermented rhubarb was something I came across. And, but yeah. it's always salty. And it's not necessarily to everybody's taste. So I'm really interested in this idea of where, where, where you can get a nice, stable ferment without using salt. Um, yeah. And it does seem to be... Let, let me just also throw out that you yeah. can also go with any of these things um, um, and, and you know, by adding some sugar, take them in the direction of, you know, alcohol, um, acidic, non-salty beverages, and vinegar. Yeah. 
So like in the, you know, in the tradition that we call country wines, which mm-hmm. is, you know, certainly alive and well in, in, in the UK with, you know, I've had parsnip wines and yellow wines and blackberry wines, but, um, you know, I, I, I can't specifically speak to cow parsnip, um, you know, but, but, but by making a sugar water solution and putting any kind of aromatic plant into it, you know, you can make a, a wine or potentially a vinegar, um, uh, you know, that, 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 that's fermented from an infusion or a decoction of, you know, like anything you could imagine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's fun. I, I guess I'm, I'm a bit I'm a bit fixated on the lactic acid thing, you know. I'm just like, I think this is an interesting um flavor for for drinks well and 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 then if you don't add yeast if you just let raw plant material guide the country wine fermentation then you will end up with a hybrid Mm. that you'll get yeast and lactic acid from the the raw plant growing together and so you know it's not like historically uh, yeasted things and lactic acid things have been two completely separate categories i mean most traditional alcoholic beverages involve a lactic acid component um right um, okay. you know, something I've been yeah. something I've been sort of like um, um, learning more and more about is sake making. But like the starter for sake oh, involves cultivating both yeast and lactic bacteria. That's and in like the most modern production where they're pitching yeast, they're adding a lactic acid bacteria wow. mixed to it. And that's very easy to cultivate in a, you know, sort of natural botanical way. Well, I suppose the closest I've come to that, at least in, and and known that I've done it, is is um, we've been experimenting with fermenting birch sap. Mmm, delicious. Now, if you keep that anaerobic, it's clear, and 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 it seems it seems to me that that it's just lactic acid um, bacteria, and and that's the source of the sourness and the flavour. But again, we have the same dilemma. As soon as we open the container, we, we, we've got oxygen on top, and, and it's fairly obvious that the yeast developed then. But if they don't go too far, then the flavor is still pretty interesting. It, it seems like the thing is less stable then, but, but I think we have ended up with a combination of, of um, lactic acid bacteria and, and yeast. Yeah, with the yeah. birds that. Um, but going back to salt-free fermentation of of vegetables, the the biggest thing we've done for years is um is wild garlic or rancins, which is a bit similar to your uh, ramps that you have in the states. Not quite the same, but similar. It's just like a big flat garlic leaf, and we chop yeah. that and add salt, and and it's really good, um, and really really stable as well. Because we actually ferment that in the middle of the summer, and we let it we let it run for um for a good few weeks before we put it in the fridge. Um, uh, and we find that works. We, we, we can get away with it. But I think... Yeah, the reason, they're delicious, yeah. No, yeah. I've, and, I, and I've had them fermented too. I mean, incredibly delicious fermented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I, But I think what's going on there is that you've got the... Um, the... the... Uh, the, the garlic, the, the, those allium oils in there, are actually doing some of the um, the same work that the garlic does, that the salt does rather. And what got me thinking that was we found out from um, there's a Polish ethnobotanist who's always feeding me useful bits of information about 
um, traditional food culture and that. And he told me that they they lacto ferment the um, the same species that we have in Russia, but they never use salt. So they're just doing a fermentation. Ransom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we tried it. Um, it's a bit harder to get the juice out, but we persisted, and um, and uh, and we even did some whole just to see what would happen. So we had some whole leaf rancins and and um, didn't add any water, no brine. We just pounded it till the liquid came out, and then that fermented it. And it's also a very interesting flavour, and and also stable. You know, it, it doesn't mm. it doesn't go. Off. But the difference that we found was um, was that the, uh, the the texture was quite tough. So what we were missing out on is what the salt does to somehow break down the cell walls. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah, interesting. But but the fascinating thing for me was the fact that the, that the garlic has got its own version of salt, effectively the same point I was making with the uh, the aromatic carrot family ones that that it's that it's inhibiting the other bacteria purely with the garlic oils. Well, I mean, the one other thing I would just add is mm. you don't need salt in any of these things. Okay. I mean, salt is, isn't essential. I mean, salt um, uh, makes it easier to get the juice out of the vegetables because right. salt pulls, goes ahead and, you know, through osmosis, pulls, pulls juice out. It narrows the range of what organisms will grow, but even if you don't do that, the lactic bacteria are going to dominate. Um, the biggest difference in most uh, ferments that don't incorporate salt is they'll get soft and mushy. Right. Um, much faster than if you do add salt. Um, but in certain things, either that are soft and mushy anyway, um, 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 or where it doesn't, yeah, where it doesn't detract, um, uh, it, it, it doesn't matter. And, and, and around the world, there are lots of traditions, especially in places that didn't have easy salt supplies of, um, you know, fermenting vegetables without any salt whatsoever. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting. Is it? Is it? Um, but it's less stable, right? Or it's 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 a safer bet with salt. Would would you say? Or well, I mean, you know, there there. I mean, as you discovered that there are plant compounds that can you know maybe offer some of the advantages of of of, of salt. Um, you know, let, let, okay. The one I'm most familiar with is the Nepali tradition, and and the vegetables are always dried in the sun first. Right. So they're 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 wilted in the sun, then they're pounded till they're juicy, then they're stuffed in a jar and fermented for a few weeks, and then they're taken out and dried and stored dry. Right. So you know they're finding ways to prevent the vegetables from getting totally soft and mushy. Mm. Um, and so, and, and I've noticed that, like, I, just across Asia, people work in different ways with drying the vegetables as another variable, either drying before yeah. the fermentation or drying after the fermentation. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. I'm going to, I'm going to try and explore that. One. And and we see the same yeah. thing in any kind of fermentation of meat or fish, of mm. trying to lower the the, the water content. So you'll always, let's say, any fermentation of fish, you'll salt the fish the day before mm. and then get rid of a bunch of the liquid and have much firmer flesh that you're dealing with yeah. to introduce into a fermentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So water content is another one of these you know, selective environment factors. Yeah. So, you know, the more water content, the wider the range of organisms that can grow. And by limiting the water content, you're narrowing the range of what organisms can grow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm sort of laboring the point a bit here just because I'm really fascinated to get your thoughts on it. But like the, the, this, this, um, this idea I keep coming back to, there being something in the plants, certain plants that will inhibit, um, spoilage bacteria or, or, um, the ones that you don't want. Yeah, I, I think we could say that every plant produces compounds, you know, that, that, that either encourage certain kinds of organisms or discourage other kinds of organisms. Yeah. And similarly, every bacteria produces compounds that will inhibit certain other kinds of organisms. Yeah. I mean, it's just part of how every organism is able to function in this biodiverse world is by, um, you know, sort of producing compounds that will influence the composition of the microbial communities on it and around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, and we, we do that also, like different, you know, different parts of our bodies, you know, produce nutrients that have the effect of encouraging or discouraging different kinds of, um, you know, microbial communities on, the, on, on those parts of the body. So you probably have different kind of bacteria in your armpits, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I can say, you know, part of women's reproduction is, um, um, you know, their, um, their vaginas secrete um, um, compounds that support lactic acid bacteria. And that's part of, you know, creating the acidity that enables effective reproduction. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, so, so like all biological systems, you, you know, different parts of our bodies are, you know, produced food for organisms that uh, contribute to our healthy functioning. That's amazing. Well, um, so I just wanted to tell you about two two other bits, um, and, and then we'll probably wrap it up. Two, two other bits of the, the experimenting I've done around this this theme that um, I'm talking about here with the inhibition of bacteria by by the plant compounds. So this one happened last week, and I can't think of another explanation. So I, I've, I've been doing stuff with cabbage and I always put a bit of onion in. Okay. But this time I put a lot of onion in and I don't okay. have the thing in front of me, but I think it was, it was close to 50 50 as in, okay, half cabbage, half onion. It won't, it won't do anything. It's, it's a really nice salad. It's, it's sucked the juice out of both the, yeah, I mean, it's a delicious thing, but there's, there's no, um, fermentation going on. Every every morning I well, go down. I mean, what I would say, I w I would only correct you to say there's no visible fermentation uh, 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 going on. I mean, you certainly can ferment just onions. You can certainly ferment just garlic. You can ferment just chili peppers. Um, you might not get as vigorous and visible of a bubbling going on, but definitely the carbohydrates in those foods are going to ferment. Well, but, I mean, the reason, just the reason I thought. That nothing was going on there, uh, Sandra. It's just that um, what I always do with my ferments in the kitchen, just these small scale things I'm doing in kiln jars, is I just come down and let it off very, very slightly and stick my ear there just to check it's alive. And it will always go. And when I did it to this one, it, it, 10 days later, it's still not going. 
which makes me think it's not producing any. Well, it might have. I mean, not all lactic acid bacteria produce carbon dioxide. I mean, so you might have strains of lactic bacteria growing that don't produce carbon dioxide. That's funny because, you know, I've tasted some today and I thought, this does taste sour. But, yeah, but that's the basis on which I thought it wasn't fermenting. So that's fascinating. So, yeah. So, I mean, okay. just sometimes fermentation sometimes can be just, you know, vigorous and there's no way to not see it. And it's right in your face. And other yeah. times it can be extremely subtle. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, different, different strains of bacteria functioning at different rates, um, under different conditions. You know, I, I mean, I can't necessarily explain it with any more specificity than that. Well, that's good enough for me. If they don't all produce carbon dioxide, that would totally explain it because it does taste sour. It does taste like it's fermented, but I was, I was asserting this hasn't fermented just on that basis. Well, this is rapidly turning into the fermentation helpline. Welcome to my life. <laughs> <laughs> so let me give you the last the last one, which isn't so much a question as, as, a, as a, a discovery I'm excited about. So the thing that started out saying was that, that some of these leaves just turn really bad after a while. And the worst for me is nettles. When we ferment mm. nettles and they just go over, it smells it smells like something's died. It's really awful. Well, and that's from the high chlorophyll. Nettles yeah. is just extremely high yeah. in chlorophyll, and that's just that's the that's the flavor of um, you know lacto fermented um, um, nettles. Like yeah. it might be more palatable if it was a smaller proportion of nettles um, yeah. embedded in something not with not as strong of a flavor. Or what I've really enjoyed is um, um, you know a nettles mead or something. So right. so in other words, making something alcoholic yeah. that's flavored by the nettles. Um, and, um, you know, that ends up with a, with a, with a more mild flavor. Well, the route that we've, we've gone down is just to try putting every other plant, well, not quite every, but we, we did about 25 different experiments last year. And we put a little bit of fennel in there, you know, just all these other ones that I suspected of having this antimicrobial property. And, um, and none of them worked except one. And, and that one is still stable a year later. I've left it out of the fridge. And, it, and, it's just, and what was that one? It's, it's the cow parsnip or the uh, hogwood. Mm, okay. I mean, it's, it's yeah. extraordinary. I tell you, these, these jars, they all smelt so bad, I had to go out to the compost heap, open them, and just sort of tip them out at arm's length. <laughs> it was so bad. But, but I did just as I was beginning to open each one, have a little sniff just to check. Yeah. And this one with the hogweed, it just smelled good. And... I opened it completely and got my nose right in there and it still smelled really good. So, and, and there wasn't that much, you know, there's like maybe 10% hogweed, um, and mostly nettle, but it, it was, mm. it was completely stable and it still is a mm. year later. I haven't eaten it because I just thought, I wonder how long this will last. It's, um, uh, <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> um, so anyway, there's something going on there. There's, there's definitely something going on there with the, with the hogweed. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I admire your um, experimental um, spirit and, um, you know, I guess I would encourage you to, um, you know, do more mixing and matching and that, you know, maybe some of them would be, you know, more satisfying, mm. um, you know, in, uh, 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 you know, in something milder. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is probably the way forward. Well, listen, we've, we've talked for ages, so um, we'll probably wrap it up Good. now. 
Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Hey, let me tell you and your listeners that I'm actually going to be in the UK in September. Um, and um, as, the, as, as the details um, um, come together, I'll be posting them on my website, which is wildfermentation.com. But I'm going to be at um, a couple of festivals. Right. Um, let's see, the Good Experience Festival. And I know I'm going to mess up the name of this. Abergavenny. Um, ah, Aber- Aber- Abergavenny, no, you got it right. A food festival, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, and then I'll also be doing some sort of a talk in London um, and uh, some sort of a workshop at the School of Artists and Food. It's all just being worked out now, um, but but all the details will be on my website. Well, Sandra, it's been a pleasure to have you. And um, it's been a pleasure, a pleasure to talk. Keep experimenting. And perhaps we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do it again in maybe a year or so and see what we know then. Great.